You can date back how much water there was in the West by looking at tree rings. So people can look at petrified wood or like really old trees and figure out what the water year was like in 1750. So we have a good sense of what water supplies were like in the West over almost a thousand years now. Welcome to the Book Society podcast, the podcast where we talk about interesting books with interesting people. I have an interesting person with me here right now. His name is Zach Smith. He's a water attorney and a journalist who writes about water and environmental issues. And if you're like me, you're probably wondering, what the bleep is a water attorney? I didn't know that water needed lawyers. And you didn't know that because you have not read this book, The Cadillac Desert, which is the book that we're going to be talking about today. So first of all, Zach, why did you pick this book for us to read? This was a formative book for me, Lucas, and thanks for having me on. You know, I was thinking back, I think I've had about five copies of this book over the years and have ended up just handing it out because people will express like a small amount of interest in some water issue. And I'll be like, this is the book that you have to read. It gets you up to speed really quickly. The newer editions are kind of keeping it relevant, even though it's what, 40 years old now, the, the original. Yeah, mine has a postscript from 2017, which talks about, you know, how the Trump administration has continued some of these policies or not continued some of them. And that was really helpful. But yeah, the book will blow your mind. The, the, the fact that we have water is a miracle and it costs like thousands of dollars a glass. We just don't <laughs> see that cost. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, that raises an interesting point. Many people think that water is undervalued. And if you ask somebody where their water comes from, they'll say it comes from the tap, but it is incredibly complex. The reason that there are water lawyers is because there's a very deep reservoir of water law. <laughs> I will permit you the metaphor. Yeah, that's right. So particularly here in the West, there's not a lot of water where we want water. And often there's plenty of water where nobody is living. So we've, over the years, had to figure out how to move water from water-rich places to water-poor places. All of that developed its own series of rules and regulations and case law along the way. Lots of great stories in there as well. That's part of the reason that this book is so good, because it tells the story. It doesn't just bore you with the like water facts. Yeah, water facts are interesting, but I drove from my in-law's house in Phoenix back to Los Angeles recently by myself. I left the family there for a few days. And I stopped along the way to look at the Central Arizona Project. And I also, when I crossed the Colorado River, I looked at the aqueduct that brings it up over the mountains and into Los Angeles. And it's these crazy, gigantic infrastructure projects with these lush, flowing rivers in the middle of absolutely nowhere, in the middle of the desert. So let me ask you, Zach, where does this beautiful clear gold come from? We're both in Southern California. So where is our water coming from? So our water, both where you are and where I am, come mainly from four different sources. So for you, you receive water from the Owens River Valley. So Bishop and Mammoth, Los Angeles owns much of the right to use that river's water. And as a corollary, owns actually a lot of the land up there too. If you've ever driven around, you'll notice signs that say Los Angeles property all over the place. Second place is Northern California. So something like two thirds of the freshwater that's available for use in California falls in 
Northern California, but two thirds of the people live in Southern California. So there are several projects that bring water from the Sacramento area and North all the way down to Bakersfield and beyond to San Diego. So when you say projects for people who have not read this book, what do you mean? You mean like a bunch of guys driving trucks full of bottled water? I sure don't mean that. Uh, <laughs> what I mean is a series of massive dams, pumps, and canals that bring water like 400 to 700 miles from north to south. So water is stored in wet times of the year on rivers like the Sacramento River. And then that water flows down to the Bay Delta, which exits out by San Francisco. And then there are pumps on the southern side of that delta that suck a lot of that fresh water out of the delta, put it into canals and deliver that water to farms and people both on the coast, like San Luis Obispo, and to California's Central Valley, where we have so much agricultural use, places like Fresno and Bakersfield, and then to the huge metropolis of Los Angeles and San Diego. There's a lot to unpack there. So yeah, we'll start with the Owens Valley. So for listeners, the Owens Valley is about 150 miles north of Los Angeles. Is that right? And it, it probably starts there and goes up. Yeah. And it gets its water from the Sierra Nevada mountains. And there is a river called the Owens River that the farmers along the Owens Valley back about 100 years ago, 120 years ago now, would use to irrigate their land. And it was a more or less self-sustainable agricultural area. But William Mulholland and his compatriots just very peacefully and nicely went up there and asked them for their land and their water rights. And the people of the Owens Valley were so happy to help the growing city of Los Angeles. That's how it went, more or less, right? More or less. You know, <laughs> for the more interesting story, you should always watch Chinatown the movie from the 70s to give you sort of more flavor than I can, certainly. But water rights are property rights. They can be bought and sold or leased. And so as Mulholland was looking at his supplies in LA, which were basically the local groundwater and the surface water of the LA River, he came to the conclusion, right or wrong, that Los Angeles would need more supplies, saw that they could move by gravity alone, so without pumps, water from the Owens River Valley, because it's so much higher in elevation, all the way down to Los Angeles, if you design the canals in the right way. And so the real sneaky part was, rather than alarming that community and going up there with hats on that say, LA Water and Power. They sent agents who didn't always identify themselves as who they were to buy up ranches. And there's just like great stories, somewhat unfortunate stories of the local populace there slowly realizing who was actually buying up all of the land and water in their valley. You know, I'll just mention on these agricultural ditches, these are things that are hand dug or dug with things called Fresnos, which are like a, basically an earth scraper that's pulled behind a horse. They're designed to a certain amount of water and they're shared. So you might get two or three ranches sharing one ditch. If the ranches downstream of you are sold and they're no longer using water, it's very hard for you to maintain the upkeep of that ditch. Sometimes you can't get enough water into the ditch to actually serve your needs. You need kind of that group effort. And so it's very hard to be a holdout if you know the four out of the five of the families that use the ditch 
have already sold to Los Angeles you or these agents, you might feel compelled to sell too. And so there were lots of different efforts to prevent Los Angeles from doing this once the word was out that that's what was happening, buying up all this water. But it was too late by that time, right? It was largely too late. There's, I mean, just wild stories of standoffs, you know, people with guns on both sides, sheriffs or like detectives from Los Angeles driving up in carloads, local sheriffs. Yeah, Pinkertons. Up with those guys and you know, <laughs> ranchers with guns. The locals dynamited several portions of the canal that Los Angeles was building. It's just a wild story and is held up often in the water world, even today, as an example of a really bad way of going about <laughs> coming up with new supplies. There are still large transfers that occur between more rural agricultural areas of California or Colorado to cities, but they look a lot different. There's a lot more criteria for moving water around. It's not quite as wild westy. What you'll see in modern transfers from those areas are a lot of funding into the community. So you don't end up with community that no longer has a source of income because you've taken away their agricultural heritage, for example. You don't end up with the situation that happened in the Owens Valley. And one of the things that it mentioned in the book was that if what Los Angeles did was not illegal, then the laws really need to be changed. Because <laughs> basically the short story of what we did was Mulholland saw this river and thought, I should take that river, I should move it so that it goes into the San Fernando Valley and make the San Fernando Valley from a completely barren desert into farmland. And I should do that at the expense of the farmland in the Owens River Valley. And the way I'm going to go about this is to send my boys up there and they'll go to the bank and say like, hey, I want to buy this ranch. And then the bank will say, yeah, that's great. But, you know, really like work the ranch. Like it's cool if you really want to have a ranch, but don't just like buy the ranch for the water rights. And then the LA agent would say, I would never do that to you. And then he would buy the ranch and then immediately sell the water rights to the LA Department of Water and Power. And this happened enough times. And as you said, by the time they caught on to this plot, these agents had been lying to their Owens Valley government's face for enough time that by the time they caught on, it was too late. And like you said, if four out of five people had sold, it just doesn't make any sense for you to hold out. It's not prudent. And today, the Owens Valley is, I mean, what's it like today? Have you been up there? Yeah, I've actually spent a lot of time recreating. And that is its sort of primary industry at this point. You have ski resorts, a lot of backcountry skiing. There's a lot of rock climbing in that area. There's a lot of fly fishing. Any farming? There's very little holdover ranching left. If we did not have all of these water projects, which is what these gigantic pieces of infrastructure are generally called, what climate are we living in? Without these water projects, how much food could California expect to grow? And with these water projects, how much food are we growing? One of the reasons agriculture in California is so big is that the climate is great for it. It's just a matter of figuring out where the water comes from in order to grow all that food. So you have places like the Imperial Valley, which is in between San Diego and Yuma, Arizona, right on the Mexico border. It has great soils. It's a wonderful place to grow because there's sunshine almost all the time, but crops need water. The Central Valley is another great place to grow food. And originally, you know, the water came from the local rivers that fall off the western side of the Sierras there. And then as agriculture expanded, the farmers started to use groundwater. But it was recognized very early on that there was more good land to farm than there was water available, both from those local rivers and from the groundwater. 
For people who have never thought about this before, what's groundwater? Oh, so this is the water that exists within the porous space of bedrock or soils beneath our feet. You know, you can think about a well, you know, where Lucas and I grow up, my house was on a well. So we had our own little well that supplied You could water. dig a well with a shovel out there. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> these, you know, these wells can be quite deep. And in the height of the drought, when there was no surface water available to farms in the Central Valley, the backlog to hire one of these professional well drillers was something like a year or two years for them to get wow. to you. So, you know, these wells are quite deep. And that groundwater wasn't really accessible until the development of more sophisticated pumps. But once pump technology improved, you know, the Central Valley grew as an agricultural powerhouse. So currently in the current system, a farmer does not pay more, like doesn't lower their water bill by using less water? Well, some farmers don't pay anything for their water besides the pumping cost of the pump. So water is a public resource. It depends on where you are in California and the West. But Pre-2014, if you were a farmer outside of like a groundwater management district and just pumping water, that water was free to you. Wow. So it's an incredibly valuable commodity that the government has set up in such a way that it is free for the people who need it the most and who are able to pump it themselves, but cost money for people like you and me who live in cities and are getting it from the tap. Your water bill might just be the infrastructure cost of delivering it to you and the treatment mm -hmm. cost. You might not actually be paying anything for the water itself. One of the things in this book, and I think especially about the California water project, the one that Jerry Brown in his first term really spearheaded, mm -hmm. was that Los Angeles was going to end up paying about 90% of the cost for the water that was going to get used in the Central Valley. So, you know, that's something. And, <laughs> and what is the... <laughs> so when there's a drought, we hear about how we should save water by you know, using the small flush button on our toilets, if we have one, taking shorter showers. How much water do we as residential city dwellers use compared to agriculture? So total water use in the state, and this is true mm -hmm. for many Western states, agriculture uses somewhere between like 70 and 90% of all the water supplies that are used either in the state or wow. elsewhere. Yeah. Does me taking a shorter shower make a difference in a drought? It will, and it does. There are two different things to think about. There's the urban demand and what is happening as our cities get bigger. And then there's agriculture, water conservation. And so we were talking a little bit about agriculture, water conservation, and people who believe in markets and believe that we should have water markets will say, we can incentivize conservation by putting a price on water. So if an agriculture user has to pay per unit of water that it's using, in addition to all the infrastructure costs, some farmers may choose to figure out more efficient ways to use water. Or they'll move their crop from a kind of a low value crop like cotton to a higher value crop like almonds. Hmm. On the urban side, there's something called decoupling happening. So population growth continues to go up. The West is one of the fastest growing places in the US. Places like Denver and Boise and Tucson are all growing faster than the average American city. But what people have noticed is since the 80s on the urban side, water use has either plateaued or gone down. It's not true anymore that if you add a person, you're adding an increment of water demand. Huh. Well, I guess that would have been more true when that person was an irrigation farmer, <laughs> for the most part, and not just a guy living in an apartment building. 
That's interesting. And one of the things I want to talk about is just how much of the United States is dependent on these water projects. Because I think people think about, well, you know, it's just Southern California, but help me out. How much of the United States is dependent on these water projects? If they all went away, what cities would no longer exist? Los Angeles, you know, <laughs> a lot. Much of San Francisco relies on large water projects, the entire Bay Area. Much of Southern California relies upon them. The front range of Colorado, from Cheyenne to Albuquerque, all rely on large water projects. Phoenix and Tucson, Salt Lake City, to some degree, relies on water that is not local. It had to be brought there to Salt Lake. So the cases that Reisner makes in this book, and I'll put it less politely than he did, but basically everybody who lives west of the 100th meridian in the United States, which is essentially like if you split Texas right up the middle, is a ward of the state, is living off of a big government water project. That is absolutely correct. That line is where crops need irrigation, basically. So you could grow corn or something without supplemental supplies in Illinois because there's enough rain. But if you're in Western Nebraska, you're going to have to be adding water because it just doesn't rain enough. Does it make sense to be farming out here? I mean, that's a huge policy question. Like on the one hand, it's slightly insane to be farming out here. On the other hand, the fact that we are farming out here has solved some serious food shortage problems in the world and enabled in part the population boom of the last 100 years globally. I mean, the United States, a country of 250 million people and a gajillion square miles, is functionally able to feed itself off of the agriculture that takes place more or less in the West, which is kind of insane to think about. Yeah, you know, people in Connecticut have lettuce in January, probably because of the lettuce grown in either Southern Arizona or Southern California. Yeah, we're from the Northeast. We'd be eating deer jerky if we were relying on local supplies all winter long. Right, right. <laughs> I think a good thing to recognize is there's a sense automatically that it's like, oh, agriculture uses 80% of our water supplies in California. That's a problem. A better question to ask, I think, is do you want to eat almonds? Do you want to eat lettuce in the winter? Because you are the consumer of that water, not the mm -hmm. farmer. Ultimately, you are the consumer. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you might read this book and be on the opposite side or like realize that you have been advocating for the opposite side. Because when you look at like things like farm subsidies, what these are largely are, this is the government paying farmers to grow certain crops or to not grow certain crops. And the results of this is taking acre feet of water that could be used downstream and using it in the you know high plains of Wyoming to grow alfalfa at a cost that if we were paying for it would be like hundreds of dollars a pound where you could grow it basically for free 300 miles south of there. One of the things that this book talks about is what they call river basin economics, where they harness all of a river, they build a dam, they do all these irrigation projects that are net losses down the road. But if the dam generates enough power to pay for the whole thing, they call it a win, which I wish I could run my business like that. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the, the story of paying for these large infrastructure projects is wild. You know, there are some that have paid for themselves and are absolutely essential to the lives that we live. And there are others that are not. And what you're seeing is a movement to remove some of these, particularly dams that just generate hydropower because they're basically unneeded. And the environmental damage that they create 
if you think about it in a cost benefit and you can quantify that environmental benefit, it stands to remove them. And so there are four dams on the Klamath River, for example, that are slated to come down. Where's the Klamath River? The Klamath River flows out of Southern Oregon and Northern California and exits in Northern California to the Pacific Ocean. And that's a big salmon river too, right? Used right. To be. And so there's, you know, huge salmon industries that previously existed because there were lots of salmon. Salmon is a type of fish that essentially born in freshwater, grows in saltwater, and then comes back to breed and die in freshwater. You know, it has to be able to move freely through rivers. And they're really cool fish because they can like make their way back to the place that they were born on some random tributary after spending like four years swimming around the ocean. So it's pretty amazing. But, you know, dams obviously limit where those fish can go. So you're saying salmon can't climb dams? (laughs) Yeah, there are fish ladders. (laughs) Um, What is a fish ladder? Because that was in this book. What is a fish ladder? So they kind of look like a series of boxes that are stepped up full of water. And so the fish can move incrementally from one box to a slightly higher box full of water all the way up to where they would be able to go over the dam. But all of these environmental concerns, this is the basis of when, if you're a Californian and you read like fish versus farms or man-made drought, these terms describe this fight between salmon advocates who believe you know we need to leave enough water in rivers for salmon to be able to move through their historical range and people who grow food and want to make sure that they have enough water every year to grow that food. So we talked about rivers coming down from the Sierra Nevada mountains, the Owens River, for example, and all of these rivers essentially start in these amazing mountains that we have out here. I've heard the term snowpack before. Maybe you can just explain what all that means. So we're really blessed in the West to have natural reservoirs. So precipitation doesn't just fall as rain in places like California. It also falls as snow. And that snow accumulates into snowpack. And that's what we ski on. You know, when it's a great snow year or it's a great ski year, you know that there's a huge amount of water that is locked up in all of that snow high up in the mountains. And our rivers out West have a cycle most of them, where there's a small amount of water in them throughout the winter, but then come spring, as temperatures start to warm up, all of that snow starts to melt and it rushes down those rivers out to wherever those rivers go. And so that's called the runoff. And so snowpack is like a critical natural reservoir for us because it stores water naturally for us and spreads that water out over the year. And all of these projects that we've been describing, these dams, and canals and pumps, they're all designed to work with that natural snowpack because we know generally when it's going to get warmer throughout the year. And so dam operators and reservoir companies and irrigators can plan and places like Los Angeles can plan their water supply needs around when this big rush of water is going to come. What's the status of the snowpack? Well, the, <laughs> the, the challenge <laughs> is that the climate is changing and- allegedly. Well, you might not know that on a national politics scale, but I will say that almost everyone I interact with in the water world, kind of no matter where they live and whatever their background is, understands that essentially the water cycle is changing. It's a great place to work because there's like a sense that, you know, we all know that snowpack is diminishing in the Sierra Nevadas. There's expected to be like an 80% decrease in snowpack at the lowest elevations. 
And the prediction is that the overall amount of water that will come down these rivers is likely on average to stay the same, but it will come as rain in shorter bursts and more spread out through the year rather than as one three-month chunk of warming that is very predictable. And so water managers are trying to figure out how to reoperate reservoirs and what to do with a less predictable system. And it's going to be a challenge. Hmm. So let's talk about, I think the term of the book for me was acre feet. Hmm. Large water projects are measured in acre feet, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the amount of water that would cover one acre, one foot deep. Is that correct? Yeah. So that is approximately 280,000 gallons. So how many acre feet are we talking about? How many acre feet do we need in Los Angeles or how many do we get and how much comes from that snowpack? Just give me some, give me some numbers. Well, I'll give you some numbers. Yeah. So yeah. snow on average holds 17 million acre feet of water every year. Mm -hmm. Reservoirs, if you combine all of the volume of our reservoirs in California, that equals oh, like 42 or 50 million acre feet. So 17 for snowpack, 50 for all of our, all of our reservoirs. And then what's really interesting and kind of where the future is in terms of water management is groundwater and groundwater recharge. So California's combined aquifer space is something like 3 billion acre feet of total storage space. So that's and underground where it's underground. not going to evaporate off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've diminished that to some degree, but for the most part, there are some exceptions, but every acre feet of water we took out of the ground, that's an acre foot of empty vacant storage for us to put water back in. Hmm. And so one of the big pushes right now from the state policy level and places like Orange County and LA have been doing this for years is grabbing these either stormwater or, you know, some freak rainstorm or some of the melted snowpack and putting that underground. And you can do that two ways. You could just spread it out on some porous soil and that water will naturally infiltrate down into our aquifers, or you can actually pump it using wells that are basically reverse wells and can shoot water underground. We actually have a lot of storage space in California that is natural. And so a lot of the new projects are, well, if we're losing snowpack storage due to climate change, we can still grab that water out of rivers and put it underground. Huh. So it's not as apocalyptic as it seems, because reading this book, it made it seem like one of the cases that Reisner makes is that we're living in essentially a agrarian desert civilization, and there have been several that have all basically died out due to lack of water. And the examples he cites are the Mesopotamian civilization, which is, I guess it's Iraq and Syria, but used to be Sumer. And they eventually encountered problems of salinity that they did not know how to solve. And the same thing in what is now Phoenix used to be the confluence of the Feather and another river, I think. And the Gila and the Salt. Thank you. There's the Hohokam civilization lived there for several hundred years and farmed there. And the theory is that they too encountered some salinity issues. But I mean, what gives me hope and tell me if this is misplaced, but I don't think they understood this ecosystem to the level that we understand it. Like, I don't yeah. think they understood that there was aquifers thousands of feet deep that were recharged in certain ways and all that kind of stuff. But we seem to know that stuff. Yeah, we certainly have a lot of knowledge and technology advantages over those places. But I think the point probably is that we need to be more aware of where we live. 
And if we're more cognizant of that we live in a dry place, we will treat the water that we use with more respect. One of the things that reading this book has taught me is that looking around the San Fernando Valley where I live, really this many people have no business living here if it were just left to its natural devices. One of the things that blows my mind now is to see trees. If you think about a tree as water, it's a gigantic plant that is essentially storing a huge amount of water. And there's so many trees in the San Fernando Valley, especially if you look out at it from above, that are just fed by water from these other sources. And it is really easy to forget when you're sitting in your house and water comes out of the tap that you live essentially in a desert. Outdoor urban irrigation accounts for 50% of urban water use. And hmm. so when cities conserve, they do it in a couple different ways. They require low flow faucet heads or low flow toilets, but they also, places like Las Vegas, pay people to dig up their lawns and put in native vegetation so that they can reduce the water use. LA has a program like that. It's one of Garcetti's successful programs. And so my last question for you, do you think we're going to have another drought? <laughs> we're already in it. What is LA 20 degrees above normal today? There's been hardly any snow in the Sierras. There's been hardly any snow in the Rockies, at least in the Colorado portion. So very much looking like a drought year. But I think something that's really important to recognize is that a lot of water policy makers want us to move away from this idea of these continual droughts and instead recognize that we are likely entering into based on, so this is a cool aside, you can date back sort of how much water there was in the West by looking at tree rings. So people can look at like petrified wood or like really old trees and figure out you know, what the water year was like in 1750. So we have a good sense of what water supplies were like in the West over almost a thousand years now. And what we're seeing is that we're likely entering into like a long period of drought, or we might be entering into kind of a new normal under climate change where there's just going to be less water. And so we can't continually say, oh, we're in a drought this year because drought would indicate that we would go back to some other wetter time. And there's a sense that those wetter times will be less frequent as we move forward. So the answer is we're in what is likely to be a permanent drought by the standards of maybe 100 years ago, but is just how it is now. That's a sense that the climate hydrologists are telling us. Awesome. Well, thank you, Zach, for talking me through some of this stuff. It was a fascinating book. Thank you for recommending it. I did not prep you for this question. I usually do, but I'm going to ask you anyway and put you on the spot. I'd like you to recommend to our listeners two books that they can read, one by a living author and one by a dead author. If you're interested in this book and are excited about the prospect of a Mad Max style future where water rights are <laughs> extremely valuable and fought over, there's a crazy book by, his first name is Paolo, and it's called The Water Knife. And when I worked at High Country News in Colorado, he was the IT guy, but he was like writing science fiction on the side. And he wrote this book and it is absolutely bonkers. It's like a totally dystopian Western water rights novel. So there's a living author. Vonnegut's my go-to. It's what I read often. Do you have a favorite? The one that always sticks out in my mind is Breakfast of Champions. Fantastic. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Zach. This was informative and I think probably a little bit terrifying. 
And I look forward to talking further. Maybe we'll have you back and we'll read one of these other books. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What is a fish ladder? Those don't turn into like bear buffets. <laughs> they might. I don't know. <laughs>